0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is the Red Line, where we usually interview three big geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. But today, we bring you our special 100th episode of the Red Line podcast. Hello, and welcome to the special 100th episode of the Red Line podcast. Celebrating nearly 10,000 minutes of intriguing stats and depressing facts. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Now, this show has been going for nearly five years without missing a single fortnight that entire time. And whilst throughout that time we've seen my sleep schedule completely deteriorate, we've also seen everything from a Chinese man's dietary choices shutting down an entire global economy to Vladimir Putin realizing that a thousand hours experience playing Hearts of Iron doesn't make you a successful battlefield general. And the red line has been covering it all. Now, between myself and the team, we tossed around quite a number of ideas on what to do to celebrate our 100th episode of the show. And the one we landed on, admittedly before we discovered it would require rereading and fact checking 2,132 pages of transcripts, was going back and looking at each and every one of the predictions we've made here on the show and scoring how many we got right and how many we got wrong. And boy, did we find some interesting clips we got some things we're right the money, like this clip from 2019. Afghanistan seems to be turning against us, and could eventually become this generation's Vietnam, creating problems not only in Afghanistan, but also in the surrounding regions. And some that we didn't get as right. No, the Taliban is unlikely to be running the government when the US
0: leaves. Because even if the US only left drones behind, as soon as the Taliban organized in battalion-sized groups, they would be bombed from the air.
1: So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we take a look at every one of our predictions from the last 100 episodes, give you a few interesting behind-the-scenes stories from the making of some of these episodes, and see just how well The Red Line holds up. And to kick it off, let's go back to episode 1, airing October 7th, 2019.
2: Episode 1, Afghanistan, 18 years of
1: war. Ah, episode 1. Back when I told my partner that this show would only take up about 2 hours of my week naive i was before getting into episode one i think we should quickly set out the parameters of our scoring system here because like geopolitics or buying a mother's day gift there really never is an absolutely correct answer in any of this and an outcome can often boil down to opinion so to avoid a flurry of emails we're only going to count predictions that could be tangibly proved to have happened or to have not happened so something like china will improve relations with kazakhstan well that's debatable but China will place regulations on their housing market to force big banks to absorb the debts of smaller ones, well, that's probably specific enough to count. And with the parameters being that specific, much like a Turkmen official reading out election day results, the numbers mean absolutely nothing, and mostly work just to make the team that wrote it feel a little bit better about themselves. So undercutting all that seriousness, let's turn to episode one, Afghanistan. And to start with, both those two clips, my prediction that this will go the way of Vietnam, and the one where the Taliban never take over, are both from this episode. So I'm pleased that I went with my gut and as always defaulted to the more depressing of the two possible outcomes. But I also wasn't alone on that one, as you can see from this clip with another one of our guests.
3: The Afghan government can't sustain its tremendous casualties. It's a hard thing to constantly send young people to go out and fight and die against fellow Afghans. Uh, So the Afghan government's army doesn't have quite the fighting spirit and heart that the Taliban do. These three groups, I believe, will wage civil war uh, alongside moderate Pashtuns, against this conservative force that wants to conquer them all and reinforce Sharia law and dominate them on the basis of a Pashtun ethnicity. Uh, so, should we ever withdraw our troops? That's the future I predict for the country.
1: In addition to that, we also had our second guest agree that Vietnam would be an apt metaphor for the country's future, and my prediction that the Taliban would conquer more and more of the mountainous and rural areas, largely unopposed. So, all up, giving us four right predictions and one monumentally wrong one. And it also shows that I was just this jaded and depressed from the very start. So the series kicked off and we hit the ground running with an episode on an issue with no easy solution on the horizon. But for episode two, we shook things up and went from an episode about a protracted desert conflict with no easy solution in sight to a protracted jungle conflict with no easy end in sight. Yeah.
2: Episode two. West Papua, bows against helicopters.
1: Not many people know this, but the show's first producer, another guy named Michael, weirdly enough, was originally aiming for the show to be more Australia-focused, mainly talking about Australian domestic policy, with some episodes about Australia's foreign policy. In the end, though, as we'll see from later episodes, the show pretty quickly moves away from Australia. And for good reason, Australian politics is absolutely ridiculous. Never forget... Australia is the nation that had a prime minister go for a swim on the beach one day and never come back, and being the sentimental nation we are, decided to memorialise him with the dedication of a swimming pool in Melbourne. So that should give you some idea of what Australian politics tends to be like. But in any case, at this point, the show was lined to look in Australian foreign policy, so we picked an episode close to Australia, that being West Papua, the easternmost province of Indonesia. Going back over the transcript, the episode is still highly relevant with none of the problems in the episode actually being addressed so far. And sadly, two of our predictions from the episode, being Rocky Up's prediction that the protest movements would not stop even after the Indonesian government's injection of infrastructure money into the region, or Jason McLeod's prediction, which was that we we'll would be seeing further dehumanizing in the population group, Indonesian media, more indiscriminate killings throughout the region, and that these Papuan uprisings across the state would continue. As for wrong predictions, well, we didn't really make any, as this episode was a much more analytically focused one. Realising we have 98 episodes to go, let's move to episode 3. Surely by this point, we pick something that actually has a solution. Episode
2: 3, Housing Crisis in
1: Australia. Yep, the Australian housing market, where the rent doubles without notice, and we all view our rental bonds the same way the Bolivia views their coastline. We'll clean the house and pretend to have a navy, but it's never coming back. And what a time capsule this episode turned out to be. But prediction-wise, some ups and downs. With Graham predicting the continuing rise of housing prices in Australia, an increasing generational gap in the housing market here, and slowing wage growth in the country over the next quarter. We have one of our other guests predict further rate cuts, but two of the others predicting rate rises, showing the massive lack of consensus in the industry at the time. We even had one of our guests predict that Australia would use quantitative easing very soon, although admittedly, probably not for the reason he thought. Jacob, the economist, did pick that we'd likely enter a recession, which we technically did. However, there is one clip in this episode did catch my attention. The, the other thing too is the, the more cuts the OBI makes, the less effective each next cut can potentially be. The lower they get to zero, the lower wiggle room they have in future. But wouldn't this burn through the ammunition they need to fight off a recession before one even started? Exactly, yeah.
0: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Luckily for us, there in November 2019, there was no major financial crisis right around the corner.
4: Sometimes foreshadowing is relatively obvious.
2: Episode 4, Yemen. A war for choke points.
1: So our Yemen episode is actually one of the main reasons this show isn't a breaking news program, as it came with a lesson that we ended up learning the hard way. So we put this entire piece together about two weeks before it was meant to go to air. I sat back, I relaxed, didn't think about it. And then, would you know it, a Houthi drone attacked a Saudi oil facility about a day before it went to air, forcing us to scramble and retrack major parts of the episode. Going into the episode, we may not have predicted that was going to happen, but we did make some predictions right. We did point out that the Saudis were unlikely to be able to take the country by force, even with talk of an upcoming offensive, and Thomas did predict that the upcoming round of peace talks would fail. So in the end, two right, no wrong predictions. And since we got a lot of positive feedback on this one, we decided we'd build upon that and cover another politically divided country with far too much Saudi money involved.
2: Episode 5, the UK election special.
1: The 2019 UK election, where the British public headed to the polls to decide whether Jeremy Corbyn hated or loved the movie Schindler's List, or whether Boris Johnson was responsible for statements he graffitied on the side of a bus. This election took place after the Brexit referendum, but right before they were due to leave the EU. And this episode would end up being the only one we would ever do on a specific election. As again, time sensitive isn't really what we do here in the red line. But fortunately for us, this was the UK election. And thanks to a few lucky guesses, we were able to pick the winner on this one. With Peter Sloman, one of our guests, doing even better than that, pretty much landing right on the money with his seat count.
2: At the minute, um, I think it looks like there's going to be a conservative majority somewhere in the region of 30 to 50 seats.
1: M.K. Henkel also predicted that the Conservatives would win the election, as well as our third guest, who was able to lay out some of the trade and supply issues the UK would experience coming up over the next two years. So in the end, three right predictions and no wrong ones. Boris Johnson would go on to win that election by a fairly thin margin and go into Brexit with the cabinet shakier than the one I built in ninth grade carpentry class. And so at the end of episode five, we had 17 right predictions and three wrong predictions, which is about 85% so far. But lucky for us, that adversarial 15% is occupied by about 1500 russian soldiers.
2: Episode 6 Transnistria, Europe's last Soviet republic.
1: I can't believe it either, but it took us nearly six episodes to finally do something Russia-related. This one being Transnistria, the breakaway Soviet Republic of Moldova. And this episode was one I've been pitching for a while, and one that got us a lot of positive feedback and new listenership. In fact, it's probably one of the main reasons the show transitioned from a more Australia-focused podcast towards something more Europe, Russia, or Eurasia-related. Obviously we cover it more in the episode, but Transnistria is a particularly odd place. To give you an idea, I remember being there a few years back and asking one of the locals why all the table plants are made of plastic, to which I got a quick response, it is because uh, you cannot get the microphone with." which is simultaneously the funniest and most off-putting thing I've ever heard over a $3 sandwich. Predictions-wise though, in the episode, we didn't really make that many. The closest thing to a prediction in the episode being one of, I guess, warning that if Russia got any further involved in Ukraine, that it would complicate things for Transnistria. Not that I want to spoil anything, of course. But for this episode, no right predictions, no wrong predictions. This was our 2nd last episode of the year, and things were looking pretty good for us. We were doing some good analysis, we were calling things mostly right, hey, maybe doing future analysis and making predictions is the way we should go. I mean, what's the worst that could happen?
2: Episode 7, Predictions
1: for 2020 Yep, Predictions for 2020, which was recorded in the first week of December 2019. then released at the end of December, as I was away at the time, is an episode that not only makes me absolutely cringe every time I think about it, but also one that single-handedly puts a pretty noticeable dent in our overall accuracy here at the show, with some absolute pearlers like this. Who do you think wins the 2020 presidential election? Trump. He's going to win. He's going to win everything, (laughs) of course. I don't know, man. I think it might be closer, but I think he's going to win, man. Or this... You know, you look at some of the soft polling
0: around Biden, the support for him is incredibly shallow. The concerns about his age, the concerns to, to which he's about out of touch. You really, at this stage, want a dream candidate to be able to topple an incumbent president. And the Democrats just don't have one. And Trump's ratings, they wobble, they go up by a bit, they go down by a bit. But unless there's some kind of big economic catastrophe, it's, his support just doesn't look like it's
3: going to go anywhere else.
1: But it wasn't all disasters. And we didn't end up actually getting some things right.
3: Another big story could be Trump loses the election and his followers refuse to accept it. And he calls, he's called for a civil war uh, should he lose the election. So if he should lose the election, don't be surprised if you have a tremendous uh, cleavage in America, uh, a refusal by Trump to uh, honor the election results, and, and uh, a, a outpouring of fury on the part of many and his party who won't accept a legitimate. Uh, election result that shows that their candidate lost.
1: And let's not forget about this one. I think there's going to be a big war. I think there's going to be a serious war. I don't know where, but I think I think it's coming. You know, and I think that will. I don't mean like Syria gets worse. I mean like a new one, maybe in Eastern Europe. We'll see. Well, I should take it a little bit easier on our guests, as I don't think many people could have predicted a pandemic coming at this point. With that in mind, with this episode, our wrong predictions were that we had two guests predict that Trump would win the 2020 election, there was a prediction that the new Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, would end the war with Putin in 2020, there was another prediction that Macron would lose the election, and one that Trump would win Times Person of the Year for 2020, and there was a prediction that the rebels in the northwest of Syria would finally collapse. On the right prediction side, though, we didn't do nearly as badly as I thought we would, with myself laying out that this would be a year of protests, one of our guests laying out that the SPD would win the upcoming German elections. A prediction that china would put a replacement chief executive into hong kong despite the protests that netanyahu's cabinet in israel wouldn't last and they'd be back to the polls soon that biden would get the democrats nomination again at that point not a certainty at all that Guaido would not become the president of venezuela and we even have one of our guests predict that biden would win wisconsin ohio and pennsylvania which two out of three ain't bad and that biden would go on to win the election a pretty big call three months before biden would win the south carolina primaries We also had the clip where Trump supporters may not accept the election results if Trump loses, and that a large war was about to break out somewhere in the world, with Nagorno-Karabakh flashing up in 2020, and Ukraine flashing up again in 2022, meaning that for this episode we got 11 things right and 7 things wrong, which is over double the amount of wrong predictions from the entirety of 2019's episodes combined, dropping our accuracy rate for 2019 down to just 73%. But January is up next. And 2020 was when the show really started to gain some of the staff and team that made what it is today. So, let's leave 2019 behind and head into 2020.
2: Episode 8, The Crossroads of Kyrgyzstan
1: Ah, 2020, the worst year for most people, but the absolute best year for most housepets. Unlike most outfits who at the time were covering the Hong Kong protests, we began the year with a story about Kyrgyzstan, this being our first coverage of Central Asia on the program but there were no real concrete predictions made during the episode one way or the other. This was more of a explain a crash course video on the country's policies. So let's move forward.
2: Episode nine, the consequences of war with Iran.
1: If we cast our minds back to late January, 2020, there was this short period where it looked like the White House was considering an actual invasion of Iran and most war journalists would think that this would be the big story of the year. So we put together an episode on Iran, laying out what an actual invasion would look like. With this episode being the first episode in the category that we like to call, look, bloggers on Twitter may have missed one or two things. A category that would continue to come up as the staff got more and more frustrated, doom scrolling throughout 2020. So we put together this long hour and a bit piece, explaining why Iran would be a much tougher campaign than Iraq was, even though that putting your Google Maps to terrain mode would have probably done just as good a job. For right predictions, one of our guests pointed out that relations with Iran and the US would improve if a Democrat won the White House in 2020, and although things aren't good between them at the moment, we're not actively discussing war or good morning America. We also had Raphael predict that Iranians would pursue nuclear weapons if the JCPOA was torn up, which to be fair was a pretty safe prediction. So in summary, we got two right on this one.
2: Episode 10, Foreign Aid, Australia's Pacific Strategy.
1: So we come back to Oceania. And it would actually be the last time we cover Oceania until episode 64, with this episode looking into how Australia spends its foreign aid money and showing how most of it ends up back in Australian companies' pockets or benefiting the Australian people. We even had one of our guests, Tess newton Kane, warn about the increase in Chinese state investment into nations like Vanuatu, the Solomons, and Fiji, something that would pop up later on when the Solomons talked about allowing a Chinese base to be established there. But rather than playing that clip, as a testament to the Australian foreign aid strategy, I'm gonna cut this section way shorter than it really should be.
2: Episode 11, the Libyan Civil War.
1: We put this piece on the Libyan Civil War together as a bit of an explainer, because at the time it kind of looked like Hafnar's forces were about to seize Tripoli very soon and that the war would be won by the rebels, which would then turn on us a few months later and Haftar would be pushed all the way back to Sirte. And although most of the reports suggested that Tripoli's days were numbered, Turek was right of the money with this one.
5: The forces opposed to Haftar um, have the numerical superiority, but lack the technological uh, edge that Haftar's weapons have, and have previously lacked the air support that Haftar has gotten from the Emirates in Egypt. Um, So perhaps now with Turkish support, we will see them start to push Haftar back. You know, it it pains me to say it, but I, I think an escalation in war is the most likely outcome for the next six months. Um, I think once this truce finally, formally collapses, then both sides will throw everything they've got at one another, we'll see huge amounts of devastation. I can see the Haftar forces being pushed back from around Tripoli and instead concentrating on the Eastern Front, and GNA forces then trying to reclaim oil fields and getting hurt quite badly from the skies
1: with another guest also concluding that despite Haftar's massive amount of artillery, that he was unlikely to be able to take Tripoli and hold it. So unlike most of the predictions here, we'd only have to wait a few months to see if they came true or not.
2: Episode 12, The Vultures of Venezuela.
1: Venezuela, our first South America piece, and also the first appearance of Chris Sabatini, the only five-time appearance guest throughout the show, and probably the most consistent thing throughout my chaotic life. At the time, Venezuela was going through a lot of domestic crisis, and throughout the episode, we all got to point at Venezuela and talk about the lack of available consumer items like toilet paper in the country. But as chaotic as that situation sounds, this was also the week that the pandemic hit the US shores. And unlike the Bolivar, the US dollar is far too expensive to use as toilet paper in a pinch. So I count that as a win for Venezuela. Predictions-wise, though, we didn't really make any. Something pretty common for these more crash coursey episodes. So let's move to the next one.
2: Episode 13. Private militaries. Wagner versus Blackwater.
1: This episode was probably the next one to really give the show a bit of a boost in listenership, and was one of the first times that we put forward a hypothetical, and that hypothetical would come true. That hypothetical being that a private company would pay some PMCs to attempt to overthrow the government in Venezuela, something that we released the episode and then four weeks later would actually happen in real life. So the question is was it a coincidence, or did we pay off the PMC in order to drive up ratings? For legal reasons, I'll let you be the judge of that. Predictions-wise, we got a few things right. One of our guests did predict that Trump would run for re-election, Candace gave us a warning of Wagner popping up in North Africa before they would appear in Mali or Burkina Faso, and we also had this clip as well. Where is Wagner likely to pop up in over the next few years?
2: Well, I think there are certainly reasons to be concerned about Belarus, Episode 14. War in the Arctic.
1: Our episode on the build-up in the arctic is probably the one most screaming for a remake as things have changed quite a lot up there since we did the episode although being more of a crash cause episode there's not a huge amount of predictions in this one apart from Rob getting one right warning that russia is likely to become more aggressive in the near future and that we shouldn't assume russia will lay within its own borders and we also got one wrong with one of our guests predicting that space force would not have soldiers in uniform before the 2020 election probably failing to account for the fact that it was 2020 And everyone would take any chance they could to get off the planet.
2: Episode 15, the South Sudanese Civil War.
1: South Sudan again fits into one of the categories where it's more of a crash course, so there was no real predictions here. And sadly enough, the political deadlock we talk about in the episode is pretty much exactly where the country is today, even though we released the episode back at the very end of April 2020. It's also, weirdly enough, the very first mention of COVID on the show, a full four and a bit months into the pandemic.
2: Episode 16, The Geopolitics of North Korea.
1: North Korea was a really eye-opening masterclass for us in misinformation, as it was during that period when we were putting the episode together that a lot of the major press was speculating that Kim Jong-un had died, as he hadn't been seen in public for a while. But whilst there was all this speculation about Kim Jong-un being dead, we were able to find pictures of his motorcade moving about and his personal yacht out to sea just off the coast of the DPRK, which we took to be a pretty good assumption Kim Jong-un was likely alive. Predictions wise, we did pretty well here. Eric told us that he assumes the DPRK probably has the missile technology to be able to hit the United States, but does have some doubts about the accuracy of their missiles. Something that would be confirmed by missile tests not long after this episode was released. Jacob, who helped us find the satellite photos, also predicted correctly that Kim Jong-un would be alive. Su warned about increased missile tests over Japan and increased military spending throughout the country. So we got four right predictions. But the highlight of this episode for me was this clip. How likely do you think it would be that the Kim regime would use its nuclear weapons? Oh, that's like a hundred percent (laughs) likely. That's what they're for.
2: Episode 17, Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia versus Azerbaijan.
1: Nagorno-Karabakh was the first wrecker of my inbox, where once we released, I spent the entire week being accused of being either an Azeri nationalist or an Armenian nationalist. Even having the pleasure of one person sending me a very personalized threat who was smart enough to use an alternative email to send it, but wasn't smart enough to take the two seconds to remove the email signature from his Outlook account, and left the giant signature along with his job at the embassy right there at the bottom of the email. Something that gave me a pretty good chuckle. Predictions-wise for the episode we did get some things right, like the fact that Armenia wouldn't launch any attacks into the rest of Azerbaijan, and that the Azeri military would likely win any wider conflict between the two, as revenue-wise Azerbaijan had really taken off by this point. Although we did get one prediction wrong, with one of our guests suggesting that Azerbaijan wasn't looking to escalate the situation, to which turned out not to be true when they launched a full-scale offensive later on that year.
2: Episode 18, The Geopolitics of Turkmenistan
1: Turkmenistan being another crash coursey episode meant that the only prediction we actually made was one from Peter that we were unlikely to see a robust Turkmen opposition pop up in the next few years, which as bets go, is probably one of the safest bets you could possibly make. This country is one of the most odd places in the entire world, and I could rant about it for hours and hours and hours, but I can already hear Wade, the producer, starting to get nervous that I'll go into a two-hour Central Asia rant, so let's move on to our next country.
2: Episode 19, Guyana, Cambridge Analytica, and the next Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: We did this episode not realizing the absolute Finders, where we'd be uncovering by doing so, with one of the guests of the episode being Brittany Kaiser, one of the seniors at Cambridge Analytica. He came on the episode to take us through the exact steps that Cambridge Analytica used to manipulate the elections in Guyana, which, once we released, made a bit of a stir inside the country. And subsequently, we had a whole bunch of underground journalists come forward and reach out to us with their work, which we continue to chase for the next few months. What we uncovered was pretty unsettling, though. Whilst I won't get into it here, one day, when we end the show, and I decide to go out in a blaze of glory, we will be happy to throw out everything publicly and then sit back, watch the chaos ensue, and then nervously look over my shoulder for the next 20 years. But so our legal advisor's head doesn't explode, we'll drop that and we'll move on to our predictions. We did get a couple of predictions right on this episode, one being that there wouldn't be a massive crackdown on companies that do what Cambridge Analytica does, but that most people would blame Cambridge Analytica and believe they fixed the problem from there with most of Cambridge Analytica's staff simply transitioning to companies that that simply do the exact same thing as Cambridge Analytica, just under another name. And two, there was a prediction by our third guest was that Hezbollah would become more involved in the black market trade here in the North of South America and throughout the Caribbean, which did turn out to be very true. Either way, for the show, if we weren't on a list before this, we definitely were afterwards.
2: Episode 20, The Philippines, Duterte and the South China Sea.
1: This was our first swim into the South China Sea, with the episode mostly focusing on the Philippines, and may or may not have been done to allow me to write off a bunch of jolly meals as research on my taxes. Looking back, this episode actually had a pretty great lineup. It was a big hitters like Eric Gomez, Sheena Greitens, and Oriana Skyla Mastro. But it was also designed as more of a crash course, so again, not too many predictions here. The only one we could find being Sheena predicting that Duterte wouldn't go forward with amending the constitution to allow him to serve for longer than two terms. So in all, a pretty solid episode. And again, if anyone from Jollibee Corporate is listening, my DMs are open.
2: Episode 21, The Libyan Civil War 2, The Tide Turns.
1: Libya 2 was our first follow-up piece, meaning it was the first time we did an episode on a country that we'd already covered. Back in episode 11, we'd done a piece on Libya before, with Haftar from the east of the country, the one that was backed by Russia, pushing all the way up to right at the edge of the capital in Tripoli in the west of the country with it looking like the capital could possibly fall to Haftar anytime soon. But as we did that piece, the Turkish doubled down on their commitment to the forces in Tripoli and began sending large amounts of drones and air support. And a little while after we did that first piece, this Turkish air support and military assistance absolutely smashed and overstretched Haftar and pushed him all the way back to the midpoint of the country in CERT. This second piece came out right at the heart of that counter-offensive. In the end though, both sides had enough force to prevent the other one making a push, but not enough force to push into the other one. And the front line pretty much sits in the same spot we left off at the end of this episode, which is absolutely great for the shelf life of the episode, but not so great for the people living in Libya. We did make a couple of predictions in this episode, with one of our guests pointing out how successful these Turkish drones would be, and that the market for Turkish drones was likely to grow exponentially coming up. Again, at this point in time, Turkey was not a major player in the drone industry, but it would make a slight name for itself here in Libya, It would make a big name for itself in the defense community with the drone's impact on the battlefield in Karabakh, and would become a household name with the Bayraktar TB2 in Ukraine two years later. So it's a pretty solid call for our first guest to point out the success of the Turkish drones already, all the way back during their first major operations in Libya. Our second guest also predicted that the front line was very likely to solidify, rather than this being a big decisive battle opening the gates for one capital or the other to be captured. So we had a part one, we had a part two, and I look forward to the inevitable part three that will come with Libya. Episode
2: 22, The Geopolitics of Kosovo.
1: Brace your inboxes, lads, we're heading into the Balkans. For our 22nd episode, taking a look at Kosovo. Much like now, tensions between Pristina and Belgrade were starting to build. So for our people interested in the Balkans, we thought we'd do a crash course on Kosovo and where it's at. And for our British and French listenership, we thought we'd give them a little bit of a treat laying out growing tensions along a border conflict that wasn't caused by either of them. The episode's a crash course in the situation, and from going through the transcript, the situation is pretty much exactly the same as it is today. Being a crash course episode, predictions-wise, we didn't do too many predictions, but we did get one right, with Vesela saying that Trump wouldn't follow through with his proposals to redraw the border between Serbia and Kosovo. After all, that's more of a Clinton thing.
2: Episode 23, Thailand. And the international drug trade.
1: Thailand, the country that everybody visits, but only about half the people want to talk about what they did there. This episode was the first appearance of John Coyne, who we'll would go on to do four more appearances on the program. And as you'll see, he nails a whole bunch of his predictions, including this one.
5: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a US admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
1: Mark my words that this, Chinese precursors are going to Myanmar, but they're also being sent to Mexico where they're being used for the production of methamphetamines there so they're a global source of precursors for the production of synthetic drugs and and they're a global supplier of synthetic opioids which again when this aired was mid 2020 far before this story broke out into the mainstream on top of that he also predicted that the precursor wouldn't stop during covid and that the increase in online retail would only make it easier for drug dealers to use the postal system to transport their goods. We also had Josh Kalansik on the show, who predicted that Thailand wouldn't accept their proposal for a Chinese naval facility. That honour would instead go to Cambodia.
2: Episode 24. Who was India's biggest
1: strategic enemy? India, an incredibly fascinating country, but I have absolutely no comments to make, especially regarding the status of Kashmir. This episode had a pretty great lineup, and does get a few predictions right, including the first guest calling that the Chinese economy would slow down in the coming year, and our second guest predicting that the Quad would not develop into another military alliance. Something obvious now, but this was pre-AUKUS. However, it was a crash course episode, so not too many predictions.
2: Episode 25. Somalia, Al-Shabaab, Pirates, and Nuclear Waste
1: Somalia was a piece I really wanted to do from the ground as we wanted to test some of the nuclear waste dump sites that have popped up throughout Somalia ourselves, as it's an absolutely tragic story. But with the border closures, it wasn't meant to be. Again, not too many predictions here, the only one really being that the withdrawal of Ethiopian troops and peacekeepers from the region would likely result in al-Shabaab regaining some of their territory, which we did see as Ethiopia pulled back some of its troops with the escalation of its civil war. But we'll talk more about that one later.
2: Episode 26. Will the Afghan peace deal... Actually work.
1: Finally, an honest to god predictions episode. This one took him to Afghanistan and what's likely to happen in the country over the next twelve months. And not to turn our own horn, but going back through the transcripts, we were depressingly close to the mark. To start with, both myself and all three of the guests predicted that the US would pull out of the country and that it would be the Taliban to take over upon the departure. There was a prediction by our first guest that the Taliban wouldn't face a fight coming into the city, and a great call that the Taliban. Would not take an isolationist position, but instead quickly approached nations like China looking for BRI investment, hoping to play China and the US off against each other to secure funding for the new regime. One of our guests was also correct on the numbers that the US would draw down to below 5,000 personnel before inauguration day, and that Trump wouldn't pull out of Afghanistan early as some sort of election stunt, knowing that a US pullout would almost inevitably lead to a Taliban takeover, which would not be a great look right before an election. Jarrett also called that the US would still be one of the major financial backers and players in the country, no matter who was in power in Kabul. He was also pretty much smack on with his timeline, saying that the Taliban takeover would be more than three months away, but less than a year away. It seemed that in our 2019 episode, some of the experts were still holding out hope that a US-backed government could hold out in Kabul. But by 2020, all of our experts seemed to think that a Taliban takeover was really a foredraw conclusion at most. I'll say it once and I'll say it again. If you pick the most depressing option, you'll probably be right over half the time when it comes to geopolitics.
2: Episode 27, The Geopolitics of Mongolia.
1: I absolutely love Mongolia. I love my time there. I still think they have the best, if not top two flags in the world, but I will never understand why so many people in that country kept offering to put seafood sauce in all my food. Like no one realized how far we were from the ocean. Regardless, we'd still recommend that everyone visit the country at some point. For this episode, the only prediction that was made was that if Biden were elected, he would likely relook at the amount of student visas offered to Mongols by the United States, after Trump had rolled that number back during his presidency. So, just the one for this one.
2: Episode 28. How to manipulate an election.
1: And we finally arrive at it. Two weeks and one day from the US presidential election. Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And at the time, it was looking like Biden would win based on polling. But I don't think anyone was really confident about it. So many of us have been bitten by polls before, and there was also worry amongst a lot of the analysts when inevitably the in-person votes would get counted first, and these were all much more likely to be Republican votes. So for the first day, it would likely look like the Republicans had won the election. Probably nothing to worry about, but definitely something that was on everyone's mind at the time. Either way, there were a lot of asterisks going into this election. And we wanted to do something about the election, but we'd also learned our lesson from episode 5 with a UK special, so instead chose to do something on election manipulation where we could talk about the issues without actually talking about the election. Kind of a bird spotter's guide to what to look out for with manipulation. We had an Australian Prime Minister jump on the program, as well as a friend of the show coming in to talk about dirty money being used in the Brexit campaign, something that was proven true in later court cases. But to be fair, that doesn't also mean there wasn't money on the other side. We also had our third guest talk through Russia's potential plans to disconnect itself from the internet, that being something that would play a much larger role later on, although we did get one thing wrong, with our third guest suggesting that Russia was likely light years ahead of us when it comes to information warfare, something that proved probably not to be true when in 2022, the propaganda was ham-fisted at best, and only really worked on people who were already predisposed to believing most of the things that Russia had been putting out anyway. Either way, an interesting time capsule on how this all works.
2: Episode 29, Who Controls the Caspian Sea?
1: This one was a really interesting episode to put together, as the Caspian Sea is just so often overlooked as an important geostrategic place in the world. And even amongst Russian naval officers, the Caspian fleet is often seen as a bit of a joke. But with that amount of gas, and the long-touted central corridor, the sea is beginning to become more and more important. Predictions-wise, we did get a few things right. One of those being that Russia will look to increase its trade with Iran, which it very much has. And the other being that Kazakhstan, in the event of tensions with Russia, will look to increase its trade across the Caspian Sea, which admittedly, because of sanctions on Russia, is actually taking place at the moment. But again, mostly an analytical piece here and not many predictions to talk about.
2: Episode 30, the geopolitics of Indonesia.
1: Indonesia is a thoroughly fascinating place. It's an absolutely huge country where all the major cities feel really cramped. It's a juggernaut of trade, but on hardly anyone's radar. And it's a deeply solemn and beautiful place in touch with nature that's also ruined by packs of Australians that are more cigarette than human. In any case, though, it's a thoroughly important country to geopolitics. And I'm sure we're doing another focus on it sometime in the near future. Predictions-wise, we only made two. One, the Indonesians would sign the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership by November, which they did and two, that Subyanto would likely be the frontrunner for the 2024 election. Now, it's obviously too early to make that call fully, but it is in the back end of 2023, and he is looking like the likely frontrunner of that election.
2: Episode 31, Nagorno-Karabakh 2. A frozen conflict goes hot.
1: A few weeks before the 2020 election, Azerbaijan broke the decades-long stalemate around Nagorno-Karabakh and launched a massive offensive against the Armenian forces there knowing well that the rest of the world would be distracted with the results of the US election. The offensive would go for around a month, and would come to a ceasefire about two weeks before this episode would release. So this episode is more of a recap of what just happened, and what the country is going through now, as well as how the new board is now set, as this offensive really did upend everything in the Caucasus. We wanted this piece to be as thorough, whilst at the same time neutral. So this piece was done with a lot of consideration and care, making sure that we chose each and every word incredibly carefully. We went into it with absolute care, but our listenership compared to what it was for the first Karabakh piece was almost five times higher, but I also only got about twice the angry emails that I did on the first one, so statistically I'd still call it a win. Predictions wise, one of our guests laid out the many problems that would likely arise in the coming months, including problems around passport checks and who could come and go between the Karabakh enclave. Another one of the guests also raised the issue that whilst Russian peacekeepers were in place, things would be fine but if they needed to pull away to, let's say, fight a war in a nearby country, that it would throw the entire theater's security into doubt. Another guest pointed out how well Turkish machinery did against the Russian tanks in Karabakh and speculated that if an enemy was to fight Russia using these Turkish drones, it would be pretty painful for the Russians, something that turned out to be right on the money when Ukraine would use Turkish drones to directly attack Russian columns. A third guest also pointed out that Iran was likely to become more involved in the theater. Which they very much did, in throwing their weight around at a recent border tensions between Azerbaijan and Armenia. But the worst prediction was that the war was nowhere near an end. And that both sides were still antagonised, and that's certainly been true. And now before I get another angry email, let's move on to the next country.
2: Episode 32, Colombia.
1: Colombia. An entire 90-minute episode boiling down to, well, yes, I know you don't want me to sell and manufacture drugs, but they're so goddamn profitable and easy. Effectively negating all the work that we're doing in the region. It's a pretty standard analysis piece, and we actually are no predictions on either side from this one. So, not much to report here.
2: Episode 33. The Geopolitics of Tajikistan.
1: Tajikistan is the last episode of our 2020 season. We started the year with Kyrgyzstan, and we finished the year with Tajikistan which I would absolutely love to say was part of some master plan, but it was actually just a coincidence. What some may not realize, though, is we actually did take a bit of a slight gamble on the Tajikistan episode, as I was away during the release of this one. So we recorded and edited this one about a month before it went to air, knowing full well that during that period, there's going to be an election in Tajikistan. Now, usually we would never take that risk with any other country, but with this episode, we'd had no choice but record the entire piece on the assumption that Rakhmon would still be the president by the end of the year. Now, the fact that he'd been president since 1994, and that their democracy score is usually a 1 or 2 out of 100, made it a fairly safe bet. But still, for that entire month, my fingers were crossed, and my biggest fear was that there'd be a last-minute coup in Tajikistan. So, thanks to the Tajik military for letting me have a break for a couple of weeks. And that brings us to the end of the 2020 season, with the scores for that season being 60 right predictions and 3 wrong predictions giving this season an accuracy rate of 95.2%. Although when we factor in the first season as well, the 2019 season, and that godforsaken predictions for 2020 episode, the show's overall score drops back to just 87.1%. But we still have the 2021, 22, and 23 seasons coming up, which will hopefully start to erase some of the damage that episode did. Now, as we saw from the last few episodes we just went through, the closer we get to present day, the less predictions can actually be scored. As there's less and less of them, that could come either true or false. It just hasn't been enough time for that prediction to come to fruition. So, to save both you and me some time, for the next season, the 2021 season, we'll be scoring episodes in batches of five. Otherwise, at this rate, this episode would be somewhere around the three and a half hour mark. So, with that said, let's kick into the first batch of 2021 season.
2: Episode 34, Could China Conquer Taiwan? 35, Ukraine and the War in the East. 36, Lake Chad, 37, the geopolitics of rare earth, 38, Iraq, what went wrong?
1: So we kick the year off with Taiwan, but most of the predictions here are based on a Chinese invasion of the island, so not really too much to report here. Instead, it turned out the invasion would come from the topic of episode 35, Ukraine and the war in the east, released almost 13 months to the day before Russia's big offensive into Ukraine, which would give us this great clip
4: there are complications with moving uh, more deeply into you, uh, into ukraine uh, first uh, and probably most important would weigh most uh, heavily on the the minds of uh, russia's military strategists the fact that the ukrainians would resist you know there's a great deal of loyalty in other parts of ukraine to the idea of ukraine as a as an independent state hostility towards the russians and if they moved across uh, ukraine they would meet this resistance Uh, In addition, if Moscow has run into resistance from the West uh, because of what it has done uh, in in eastern Ukraine and Crimea, the level of hostility and resistance in the West would rise rise dramatically if Russia would have pushed forward militarily. So they're in a situation now where uh, they can... Uh, continue to pursue their strategic goal of keeping Ukraine uh, out of uh, out of NATO, out of other Western institutions, at least keeping open the question of what uh, Ukraine's geopolitical orientation will be uh, without uh, assuming even greater risk in trying to occupy further Ukrainian territory.
1: I'm just saying, had Vladimir Putin been a patron of the show, maybe none of this would have happened. So Xi Jinping, if you're listening, it's five bucks a month might save you a lot of Chinese naval ships at the bottom of the Taiwan Strait. But although one of our guests does pretty accurately predict what would happen in Ukraine, another one of our guests does lay out serious doubts as to whether Europe or the US would actually provide much assistance to Ukraine in the event of a Russian invasion, which to be fair, I think a lot of us did. If you get some spare time, look up conversations about the future of NATO for about two months before the invasion. It's a pretty interesting time capsule of Europe before Russia launches that run. So some right, some wrong, bit of a mixed bag prediction-wise. Episode 36 was a piece on Lake Chad, with the only real prediction of the episode being that the area would likely see an ISIS affiliate move into the area, which did happen a few months after we aired this. 37 was our piece on rare earths, which is probably still in my top three favourite episodes we've done here on the show, and one that I don't want to spoil anything, but we'll be doing a lot more on later in the year. The only prediction to come out of that episode, however, was actually a pretty obvious one. That even if the americans were to decree that american companies can't buy chinese rare earths it would take approximately 24 nanoseconds before those same american companies particularly certain defense contractors simply start subsidiary companies based in the united states who then purchase the rare earths from china and sell it back to the company therefore they can say they bought these rare earths for an american company which is a great way to launder where it came from and how much they paid for it much like a guitar shop being willing to write you an alternative receipt for your Gretsch G544 to do T, Electromatic hollywood guitar that you bring home from work on a September afternoon in 2019 with a receipt saying that it would only cost $409. And I'm pretty sure my fiance wouldn't have made it this far through the episode, so I think I might be safe on this one. Lastly with this run, we have episode 38, which has no right or wrong predictions, but weirdly enough is the longest episode in the series, which is just a bit of a fun fact.
2: Episode 39, Pakistan's Two-Front War 40, Georgia, Abkhazia, and South Ossetia 41, Who Controls the Caribbean? 42, The Battle for Western Sahara 43, The Next Phase in Cyber Warfare 44, The Geopolitics of Uzbekistan
1: so we started this block with Pakistan, where one of our guests did correctly predict that the government in Islamabad was already anticipating a Taliban takeover of the government in Kabul, and that they'd already started economically and diplomatically putting things in place to prepare for the upcoming reset in relations. It really does shock me how many people were caught off guard by Afghanistan, as it seems like almost everyone else in the world saw it coming. Then we moved to 40 with our Georgia episode, where Thomas talks about Russia talking a big game about building new facilities and additional forces throughout the Caucasus, but in the end will prioritise Ukraine and Belarus for funding and attention, which with the invasion turned out to be very much true. He also predicted that Georgia wouldn't join NATO anytime soon, or that either of the two Georgian breakaways would vote to be annexed by Russia. So hooray for the depressing status quo, I guess. We didn't make any predictions in our Caribbean episode, but in episode 42 though, we did pull another... Here's a hypothetical, whoops, it just came true. We tracked lots of parts of the episode talking about hypothetical cyber attacks on US pipeline. And then in the week between tracking and release, we saw hackers launch a bunch of attacks on the colonial pipeline in the East Coast of the US, forcing us to retrack all those parts, talking about hypotheticals and re-release them as actual examples. In episode 43, Jalel correctly predicts that the UAE will get somewhat involved in the Western Sahara conflict, although it ended up being very minor that the Biden administration wouldn't reverse Trump's recognition of Morocco's claim over Western Sahara, and he also predicted that the Moroccans wouldn't end up buying Turkish-made drones for their military, rather than stocking up with US designs. And in 44, well, it was a crash course in Uzbekistan, so not too many concrete predictions we could draw a line on there.
2: Episode 45, Japan and the Quad, 46, the UAE's Red Sea Strategy, 47, the resurgence of Africa's conflict diamonds. 48. The shattering of Ethiopia. The war in Tigray. 49. Brazil's war in the favelas. 50. The splitting of Cyprus.
1: Episode 45 had the show's long-time producer opening the program, which to me was actually really cool. We also had the return of the Oracle himself, John Coyne, who predicted that the Quad wouldn't develop into much more than the occasional military exercise and mostly just economic talks. And again, it seems obvious now, but this was far before AUKUS was announced, and Australia and the US were looking for some sort of military framework to hang their relationship upon. We also had a correct prediction that the Quad would serve as the backdrop for talks on rare earth supply chain development, particularly between the US, Australia, and Japan, and another correct prediction that Japan would break its rule and exceed the 1% limit on military spending, which admittedly they pretty much had been before by moving parts of their military spending into other parts of the budget, but it was after this that Japan would full mask off about it. In episode 46, we saw a prediction that the UAE would begin purchasing Chinese military equipment, with Abu Dhabi actually going on to place orders for Chinese I-15 multi-role fighters afterwards. In 47, our piece on African conflict diamonds, we went through how easy it is to launder diamonds in the current diamond trade system, and laid out the exact systems that not only Russian proxies use, but also the same system that now major Russian companies like Rusal also use to launder their diamonds into the industry. I don't think it's much of a surprise that when we sanctioned Rusal. Russel's approximate output in diamonds started appearing in places like India and the Middle East. As a side note, it was also a piece that we had so many people willing to come forward and talk to us and even send us technical walkthroughs as well as stolen documents from their office, but almost no one was willing to come forward on air if we were going to be bringing up De Beers, even people whose job was barely connected with the industry. If we were talking De Beers, no one wanted to borrow it. It was just an odd tidbit from the episode but it really showed us what sort of grip the De Beers has on their workforce. 48 was our piece on the Ethiopian civil war, and another one we should probably do a follow-up on at some point. Our first guest, Alan, does correctly predict that we wouldn't see foreign intervention in the conflict. And from Alex, we also got this warning. With how decentralized Ethiopia is, are there other parts of the country that may be looking at this war as a precursor for crackdowns on their provinces in the future?
3: The rhetoric that he is indulging in includes calling on the Amhara to protect and defend their land. So it is an Amhara territorial agenda, um, along with and claims calling out for Ethiopian nationalist agenda. Now, the problem with highlighting an Amhara territorial agenda is it's not just going to be against the Tigrayans. The Oromos in particular are deeply alarmed at such an agenda. So his war mobilisation is actually a very divisive ethnic mobilisation. It's a recipe for fermenting civil war in Ethiopia across the entirety of Ethiopia.
1: And he also predicted that al-Shabaab would gain some ground back in Somalia once the Ethiopians had pulled some of their peacekeepers back. Although within that episode, there's also a prediction that the Ethiopian government and state may end up collapsing within a very short period of time. But to this point, it is still standing. Episode 49 was on Brazil, with one prediction being that the military would position themselves as the conservative alternative to Bolsonaro, which we got to see play out when the military didn't back the storming of the Brazilian parliament by Bolsonaro's supporters a few years later. And episode 50 was Cyprus, but there were no real concrete predictions laid out in the episode.
2: Episode 51, Belarus, 52, The Future of Space Warfare. 53, Vietnam, 54, Algeria, 55, Russian PMC operations in Africa.
1: In the back 50, the home stretch now. And to start with, episode 51 was another really big one for us listenership wise, where we did a deep dive into Belarus, a nation I find thoroughly interesting, but also one that served me corn on pizza multiple times, and I can never really forgive them for that. In the episode, one of the guests does predict that NATO possibly sees Russian aggression on the horizon and will likely begin to start to spend a bit more money in the places where it actually matters, like the Baltics. In episode 52 about space warfare, one of our guests gave us some warnings about the chronic behind-the-scenes problems in the Russian space industry, far before many of the major problems came to the surface, like the Russian projects of Vostoshny. 53 was Vietnam and didn't really have many predictions. 54 focused on Algeria, with one of the guests predicting the upcoming Hirak protests that would sweep through the country. That same guest would also predict that Algeria would continue to harbour Sawari rebels in Tindouf, and there was another guest who would predict that the Algerian government would make a lot of big announcements about corruption and restructuring throughout the economy, but that nothing would actually be done about it once the price of oil went back up. In episode 55, about Russian PMC operations in Africa, we didn't make too many predictions, but we did have statements like this one that, whilst probably correct at the time, have aged about as well as a carton of milk in the back of a station wagon.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Unlike someone like Executive Outcomes, a pre-operative military company out of South Africa, Wagner takes his orders almost solely from the Kremlin. Episode 56, Could
2: NATO Defend the Baltic States Against Russia? 57, Sri Lanka. 58, Bosnia, a piece in pieces. 59. Russia's Pacific Strategy.
1: And to close out our 2021 season, we had a crazy good run of episodes, starting with a look at whether NATO could defend the Baltic states in the event of a Russian invasion. With guests predicting that Russia and regional conflict would run out of tanks far quicker than most anticipate, that the American government would be in contact to welcome Sweden and Finland into NATO in the event of a Russian attack in the region our second guest predicting that NATO would open the doors for Sweden at the very first chance it got, and in an incredibly prophetic prediction that Russian armour is particularly vulnerable to have their advance slowed down if engineers and defenders could sabotage their avenues of approach, something we saw firsthand north of Kiev just three months after this episode went to air. But on the other hand, we do have one guest on the episode who doubts Russia would do much more than just complain in the region and is unlikely to invade another country. Moving along to episode 57, which was on Sri Lanka with the episode warning of economic catastrophe within the economy about 10 months before the economy would collapse and Sri Lankan citizens would storm the presidential palace. One of our guests predicted that the country would head into a foreign currency crisis soon, but that even if the Sri Lankans did, that they wouldn't allow the Hambantota port to become a Chinese naval base. And our first guest gave us a strong warning that if the foreign currency crisis wasn't resolved very quickly, that the country would devolve into economic catastrophe, which it did. In contrast, one of the other guests did suggest that the country would be under the Regapaksim government for a long time, which turned out not to be true when he was thrown out of government July later that year. For episode 58, a piece on Bosnia, there wasn't too many predictions. But it was the first appearance of James Kerlinsey and Tim Marshall on the program, two of my absolute favorite geopolitical analysts. And then we moved to the last episode of the year focused on the Russian Pacific fleet, as whilst the rest of the world was watching Russian armor maneuver all around the borders of Ukraine, we were looking over in the Pacific and seeing what Russia was doing over there, with most of the guests pointing out that Russia is watching the Pacific become more and more important, but also acknowledging that the Kremlin knows that the Western Front will probably be their main focus for at least 10 to 15 years. We also had one of our guests predict the Lavrov's visit to Vietnam to try and re-establish Russian ties and bases within the region. And I know it's not exactly about this topic, but when we asked one of our guests what would Russia do if China invaded Taiwan, be the answer he gave Sounds like exactly what's going on at the moment, just with the roles reversed.
0: I would imagine that there would be some level of support to China, but I don't think it would be hard military kind of support. I think that the narrative is that they would support China, but I think it's unclear as to how much they would actually provide military support.
1: And that brings us to the end of 2021. And looking at the stats across the year, we have 36 right predictions and four wrong ones, giving us a 2022 season accuracy. Of 90%, and then when we factor in the two previous seasons to get an overall show average, we end up getting 89.8% accuracy, an almost three-point rise from last season. So still trending really well, but let's see how we do in 2022.
2: Episode 60: How terrorist groups are funded. 61: Turkish influence in Central Asia. 62: The geopolitics of Suriname. 63. Can Syria be rebuilt? 64. Bougainville, Papua New Guinea, and the Battle for Melanesia. 65. The feasibility of an EU army. 66. Why are military coups on the rise in Africa? 67. Oman. 68. How effective are economic sanctions? 69. Chinese influence in South America. 70. Romanian and Moldovan reunification.
1: Okay, 2022, picking up the pace. Episode 60 of the program was on terrorist funding, which gave us two right predictions. One, that there'd be a boom of casinos this year being used to launder money, probably because Russia was placed under sanctions, and that the UAE would end up being listed by the Financial Action Task Force, something that was at the time unprecedented. And I, for one, was shocked that the UAE would do less than recordable things with their money. It's never happened before. Not even We've never thought about it on the show. 61 was on Turkey's influence in Central Asia, but there wasn't any really hard predictions on this one. 62 was on Suriname, a nation that Latin America experts claim is a Caribbean nation, that the Caribbean nations claim is a South American nation, and that the South American nations claim is Dutch. So finding any experts for the episode was an absolute pain. However, in the episode, Chris predicts that Lula da Silva will win the upcoming Brazilian election, and that Lula will do more outreach than Bolsonaro had done to nations like Suriname. In episode 63, Syria, our guests predict that Syria will be invited back into the Arab League, which the first steps of that process have already begun, and that the US will continue to shun Syria even if Syria is welcomed back into the community, leaving much of the future of the country to the Russians and the Turks, and that the Chinese wouldn't end up throwing any serious money at reconstruction here. Episode 64 was the episode directly after the Russia launched its full-scale invasion into Ukraine. So of course, being a Russia-heavy program, we did an episode on Bougainville, a small breakaway province of Papua New Guinea in Oceania. Just absolute classic redline territory. Going through the episode, there wasn't too many predictions or anything that would have solidified into concrete yet. The only one being that the actual process of separation would not be triggered on time and would likely drag out for years beyond what the campaigners might have hoped for. As is, Bougainville still hasn't got its independence. Episode 65 was our piece on the feasibility of an EU army to which we did have a guest predict that Europe would go through with implementing energy sanctions upon Russia, which again at the time really wasn't a certainty. Episode 66 unpacked the rise of coups unfolding throughout West Africa, much of it exacerbated by the immediate aftershocks of grain shortages and fuel shortages, as well as supply troubles brought on by the war in Ukraine, although there isn't any major concrete predictions made in the episode. Episode 67 was our piece on Oman and is the first appearance of good friend of the show, Colby Connolly. With the episode being a crash course piece on the country, there isn't too many predictions in this one. Episode 68 was on the effectiveness of sanctions, mostly asking if the EU sanctions on Russia would actually be effective in curbing the country's behavior. To which I would argue that yes, it did hurt the Russian economy, but it still hasn't curb the Russian's behavior. Although it's probably too early to tell at this point. Episode 69, Chinese influence in South America, however, did give us some predictions. With good friend of the show, Paul Angelo, correctly predicting that Honduras would flip its recognition status to China, whilst Belize, Haiti, Guatemala, and Paraguay would all maintain their recognition of Taiwan. He also pointed out that El Salvador's experiment with Bitcoin was very likely to go badly, and had a high chance of leading to increased resilience on China by the government. Then, moving to Episode 70, James Lindsay correctly predicted that Moldova would likely be looking more at EU integration rather than EU membership, at least in the short term most likely because of the situation with Transnistria in the East. Episode 71 to Episode 80 Okay, now we're really picking up some steam. 71, the arms race in the Indian Ocean, did correctly predict that Australians and the US would seek a closer military cooperation. Episode 72, which was a look at could Europe survive the winter without Russian gas, the answer being yes, possibly because the Europeans bought a bunch of Middle East gas whilst India was buying the Russian gas that the Europeans were buying. The third guest on the episode actually managed to make a whole bunch of really good calls on this one, Well, the fact that the Caspian Summit, airing the week after we aired this episode, would not propose any major changes to cross-Caspian transit. He also predicted that Austria would adopt a strategy of hoarding oil and gas from Russia, then turning to Norway, complaining about the price, and restocking itself from Russia. Harry also predicted that the market for gas wouldn't return to pre-COVID levels, even post-winter. He also predicted that we'd see higher-than-average prices throughout the time these restrictions remain in place. And on top of that, he also predicted that the upcoming gas deal between Russia and China that was about to be signed would see Russia selling to China at a lower rate than they were used to. But we didn't get everything right on that episode, as one of our guests did suggest that the Polish gas market could fill the large gap in the European market, which hasn't seemed to manifest as yet. Now, moving forward for episode 73, which was Balochistan, 74, the black market for nuclear weapons, 75, which was human trafficking, 76, our aircraft carriers becoming obsolete and 77, the cyber war in Ukraine, and 78, Turkey's role in the Middle East, none of those episodes had predictions that have had enough time to tell whether they're really correct or not. So no points here for any of those episodes. Episode 79, however, was a deep dive on the Myanmar civil war, which since recording has really only gotten worse and even more fractured. On that piece, our guests did make a number of predictions, one being that the Tatmador, the military regime, would increase the tempo of village burnings, which they have. There was also a prediction that we'd see an increasing number of Burmese army officers deserting from the army, which we have as well, and that the opposition forces would likely stick to guerrilla tactics, which they have. One of our guests even called it right that apart from a few diplomatic pleas from members of ASEAN, the outside world has largely continued to avoid getting too involved in the Myanmar conflict, with the exception of China and Russia, who still continue to supply the government forces with arms. What we haven't seen is this develop into some sort of proxy war. Now moving forward as we head into episode 80, in which, at this point in time, the Red Line was doing weekly episodes, with the Red Line still putting out content, whilst also doing our bi-weekly Green Line series. Now, for this special, we'll be sticking to just the Red Line pieces, but I do look forward to measuring the accuracy of our Green Line predictions from the inevitable Mad Max Colosseum, atop the last freshwater puddle in all of Western Australia. But for now, though, we talk about episode 80, which focused on Mozambique and the conflict in Cabo Delgado with one of the guests warning that if fighting continued in the area, it would likely spread to other parts of the country like And wouldn't you know, the fighting didn't stop, and the fighting moved on to Nampalor.
2: Episode 81
1: to Episode 85 Okay, 19 to go. Episode 81 was a deep dive on the semiconductor sanctions that the Biden administration would place on China, and it's actually one of my favorite episodes we put together. But sadly, no predictions here. Episode 82 was doing a deep dive into Saudi Arabia, which did give us the prediction that Saudi Arabia was starting to realise it can't just deal with Washington, which is probably a good bit of foreshadowing for the later China-Saudi Arabia-Iran deal that will be signed. Although going through the transcript, I did also come across this question asked of a highly respected Oxford professor. Let's say MBS bonks his head tomorrow coming out of the shower and announces to the world that he will be ending the monarchy. Episode 83 was put together to answer the question, does foreign aid work? And as much as it was interesting to unpack that question, being an economic analysis piece, there weren't many short-term predictions we can score here. Moving along, episode 84 was a look at this CSTO and how healthy it was now that the office tough guy, Russia, was having a pretty rough time in Ukraine. And we did get some things right on this one, including that Russia wouldn't call the CSTO if Ukrainian troops crossed the border into Belgorod. We also, one of our other guests, speculated that even with these Chinese procurement programs, That over 75% of Kazakhstan's military equipment would still be Russian made by the end of the year, which with the episode being aired in early December, was probably a pretty safe bet. We then finished out the season with our piece on could the US conquer North Korea, which since we haven't unleashed an absolutely horrifying war, there aren't many predictions here to work with. But although it does lack predictions, if you check out the episode, you do get to hear me argue with myself in an American accent, which may or may not have been recorded after a boozy Christmas lunch. Which, in my defense though, I can't imagine any sober person ever wanting to invade North Korea. But, with that all said and done, we now turn to our scoreboard for 2022, and the fourth season of the Red Line. Now, as much as the scoreboard looks like we're making less and less calls, it's actually really more of a factor that most of the calls we're making have had less time to come true or false. In which case, the score today may be completely different tomorrow. But, with that in mind, for 2022, we got 33 calls right, and one wrong, and of course it was. Could Europe survive the winter with that Russian gas? But with 33 right and one wrong, it gave us an accuracy of 91%. But with 33 right and one wrong, it gave us a season accuracy of 97%, which when we add to our year-on-year average, gives us an overall show accuracy of 89.7%. Okay, now for the end game, the last run, the final 14, and we're hoping for above 90% accuracy. Because Wade, the producer, said if we could do that, I finally get to go outside. So the first episode of the 2023 season was episode 86, Russian operations in Syria. The only prediction we really made in the episode was one of our guests predicting that the rumour floating around at the time that Russia was going to send Syrian fighters to fight in Ukraine, a rumour that was quite prominent on Telegram whilst we were recording this, wouldn't come true. And in addition to that, we also had one of our guests predict that Russia would pull troops from other fronts like Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan or Rabinia to start to plug gaps in the lines in Ukraine. Something probably unthought of when they started this special three-day operation. Next up was episode 87, How Strong Is The Chinese Economy? Which, for this one, we did an absolutely insane amount of research. And because of it, our guests did get a lot of short-term predictions right, including picking that the Chinese growth rate would bounce back by mid-year, catapulting from 2.9% to 4.5% growth. Although, those numbers do come from China. On the episode, we also saw our second guest predict some of the banking reforms that would be forced onto larger Chinese banks by the Chinese state going forward. And our third guess, a man legally named David Dollar, also laid out the case that the US dollar will still be the dominant global reserve currency in at least the short term. Though as a man whose legal name is Mr. Dollar, I think he may have some bias. Those would soundly be some of the last predictions made on the show there for a while. As we had no predictions that would make a tangible point from episode 88, our Venezuela follow-up, episode 89, our big piece on European rearmament, episode 90, our piece on Asian rearmament, episode 91, our piece on Bulgaria, or episode 92, our piece on the Mexican drug trade, or even episode 93, our episode on the next wave of satellite technologies. However, we did have a guest make a prediction in episode 94 though, 94 being our analysis of the Egyptian economy, with David making the prediction that the IMF would hand down some pretty tough measures for Egypt to follow in order to get those bailouts, including the free-floating of the Egyptian pound. And whilst not saying that wasn't devastating, the other major crime of the episode was Wade not letting me call it Egypt, an economic pyramid scheme. Next up was episode 95, and this was our piece on the death of the US dollar, should be proven right in about a month's time, to which most of our predictions of the episode should be proven right in about a month's time at the upcoming BRICS conference. Moving on from there, episode 96 was our piece on democracy in Central Asia, which, as part of it, we did predict that Mirziyoyev, the president of Uzbekistan, would win re-election in July. And woo-wee, what a nail-biter election that one was, with one of the opposition candidates taking home nearly 4% of the votes. But it doesn't matter, I'm going to take this point and hold on to it for 7 years, and then rewrite the constitution so I can hold on to it for another 7. Next up was episode 97, Frank Freak, which doesn't have any predictions in it. Although the episode after it, episode 98 on Estonia, even though it only came out a few weeks ago, does already have one of his predictions pay off, with Steven Pfeiffer calling this shot. And when do you expect Sweden to be able to join NATO officially?
4: There's a big push to have it happen by Vilnius, and I very much hope it will. But if it doesn't happen by Vilnius, I don't think it will be too much longer down the road.
1: And lastly, episode 99, Equatorial Guinea which was only aired about a week prior to me writing this. So there's not been a huge amount of change in a country that's had these same leaders since 1979. And moving past episode 99, it brings us to this episode, which I thought would be a super easy one to put together, but instead it took nearly two weeks of fact-checking, recording, editing, writing. But all of it was for this moment of truth, to know how accurate the red line was. By this ultra-specific, score will randomly go up and down as more and more things we speculated about come into reality. But for now, let's take a look at how myself, the research team, and everyone who helped make the red line what it is did. Now in just this bit of Season 5, we got 8 predictions right and 0 wrong, which would give us technically 100% correct on Season 5, but there's still a long way of the season to go. After all, it's July, and the season ends in December. The big moment that all the staff have been chasing though, is the overall show score. And all things said and done, over this 100 or, well, reality 99 episodes, we got 165 predictions right and 18 predictions wrong, which would give us a final score and accuracy rate of 90.1%, an A- minus by the barest of margins. But as I'm sitting here at 4am editing this, I think that's absolutely more than fine. And I'll sit here and do my absolute best To ignore the fact that had we not done that stupid predictions for 2020 episode, our accuracy rate would be 93.3%. Well, there it is, our 100th episode special. And now I've got it all out of my system, I wanna put all the jokes aside for a minute and take one minute to just give an honest, heartfelt thank you to a bunch of people who make this show possible. First of all, I wanna thank the show's staff, both past and present. There is no way I could put into words all of the time and energy and enthusiasm that they put towards this show. And if we ever look good, it is 100% because of this team. And I really cannot thank them enough. So a massive thanks to OS, Wei Car, Jamie Tanu, Robbie Sutton, Mark Spencer, who by the way, was our first additional team member and first got in contact with us back at the West Papua episode and has been voicing the chapter titles for this program since like episode nine, like four years ago. Anyway, Mark Spencer, Francis Leach, Perry Grace, Daniela Zavella, Genevieve Dodlin May, Stiller, Sean Cotter Lem, Nick McNally, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Francis Leach, Raul Devan Ryanon, Isaac Gibson, Marissa Rafter, Joe Hawthorne, Scott Missler Ferguson, Ross Crabtree, Andrew Garbery, Jonah Gunn, and Michael Archer. This is all a bit gooey and sentimental with my personal tastes but after this many years i really do kind of view these guys as my second family and there really is no other team i could have ever done this with but this team gets a thanks every episode and for the hundredth i also want to thank my family and most importantly my fiance as well who i guess by the time this goes where will actually be my wife but but that's a whole other thing who puts up with all my 3am interviews my all-night editing sessions and me occasionally turning the house into what looks like the crazy person's spider web with all my maps and papers so another thank you has to go out to you The last thanks has to go out to you for listening to the show whether you're a regular patreon a long-term fan or just checked out the show for the first time today it makes absolutely all the difference to us and i really cannot thank each and every single one of you enough for everything you've done for myself you've done for the team and you've done for this show and i mean that from the bottom of my heart so the Red Line will be back another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening to 100 episodes of The Red Line Podcast, and good night.
0: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own.